morning. We're reading this morning from Psalm 56. Psalm 56. For the director of music, to the tune of a dove on distant oaks, of David, a miktam, whatever that means, when the Philistines had seized him in Gath. Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? All day long they're twisting my words. All their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, hoping to take my life. Because of their wickedness, do not let them escape. In your anger, God, bring the nations down. Record my misery. List my tears on your scroll. Or alternatively, count them in your bottle is another translation. Are they not in your record? Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this I will know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust, and am not afraid. What can men do to me? I am under vows to you, my God. I will present my thank offerings to you. For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult word and a challenging word, and as we look at it, we pray that you'd speak to us afresh and remind us again how to handle difficult situations and remind us again of your love and your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're looking again at another psalm this morning, which Ken asked me to look at. But when you look at the psalms, don't be misled into thinking that the psalms are easy reading, that the psalms are theology light, so to speak, just like Coke light or something. Because all human life is here in the Psalms. It's full of raw emotion. And in the Psalms, you see the pits of despair as well as the heights of praise and exaltation. So as you look at the Psalms, bear in mind that these are real prayers and they're written by real people. People like you and me. 
people who sometimes wonder where God is, and people who sometimes are on the very edge. And there's stuff in these Psalms that we all need to learn from. How as Christians do we respond to difficulties, to trials, to sickness, to loss, to failure, to sins and hurts, whether it's our own or or the hurts that others have put upon us? So there's the normal stuff of life that, that brings trouble to us. But over and against all that, as Craig was praying about, we're told to expect trouble simply because... We're Christians. As so many of our brothers and sisters across the globe right now are experiencing daily to an extent that we can't even imagine. In the world you will have trouble, said Jesus. Don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, said Peter. And Johnny looked at this last week. Endure hardship, said Paul. And consider your various trials as joy, says the Apostle James. I could go on and on and on with the list. So let's not feed ourselves the lie that Christianity is cozy and Christianity is cushy. Because the real question is not, will trouble come to us? Because it will in one way or another. But the real question is, where is God for us when we're right in the thick of it? when we're right in the thick of things. Ken gave me the title to talk on Trust Under Trial this morning. And I have to say it got me thinking. Because we don't actually hear too many sermons on facing trials, not at least until Johnny did one last week, but but anyway. Um, But let's be honest, a, a treatise on suffering and trials and so on isn't exactly what we all want on a July sunny Sunday morning. But it's actually vitally important that we do look at this topic and that we start developing patterns of communicating properly with God right now and sorting our theology out right now. So that when bad stuff comes and when our faith is inevitably put to the test, we don't fall flat on our faces. So actually, we do need to be prepared for this one. And if anyone can teach us anything about trust under trial, then surely it's David in Psalm 56. Psalm 56, I read the title there. It's called of David when the Philistines had captured him in Gath. So so that gives you a clue to what's going on. This isn't the King David sitting on the throne, all powerful with an empire before him and all the promises of God being fulfilled. This is David at his weakest moment. And to go into the sort of history a bit, you might remember that back in his youth, David had slain a certain Philistine who was very tall, a certain giant named Goliath. And anyone know where Goliath came from? Gath, you've guessed it right. He came from Gath. And as a result of David slaying Goliath, King Saul gave David, who was just a shepherd boy at that time, a major part in his own own lineup, his own court. But David did very well. 
Uh, And David did so well that everyone started noticing and he got all the popularity. And so the crowd started singing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. And Saul was a pretty paranoid, jealous character, and so that didn't go down too well. And Saul got more and more jealous of David, and he started instigating all these plots to get rid of him because he was jealous of him. And he sent David off to war, and he hoped that if he was in battle, he'd get killed by the enemy, and that would get rid of him. And that didn't work, so Saul tried to set his son Jonathan against him. And that didn't work either, so then, Dave, so then Saul started hurling spears about quite a lot. He was pretty mad at this point, as you can tell. And he was hurling these spears of David and pinning him against the wall and so on. And in the end, David was forced to flee for his life from Saul. He'd been this great military commander, he'd been totally popular, he'd been the sort of talk of Israel, and now he's running for his life in a completely different Uh, sort of scenario. And where on earth does David run to? Where he runs to the last place that Saul would find him, he runs to the court of Achish, who was the king of Gath, the king uh, of the Philistines. It's the last place Saul would have ever thought of to track David down. So that's the kind of setting for this psalm. Uh, And if you really think about it, it It's an impossible scenario. Because here's David. He's Israel's first general. He's he's Israel's head man. And he's hiding right in the heart of enemy territory, in the very court itself. And if you think back to what went on in Iraq and Saddam Hussein and whatever came into my head here, but if these people realized who David was, this guy on the run, what pleasure they get from, you know, parading David around and capturing him and stringing him up. And soon enough, of course, the Philistines did get suspicious. Uh, and David's only way of escape from the court of Achish was to pretend to be mad and to hide out in a cave, in a pit in the ground. So he's being chased by his own people, by King Saul. He's behind enemy lines. All the Philistines are out to get him. He's a prize catch. He's a wanted man. And David's chances of survival look really pretty grim at this point of time. Carrie and Brody have got nothing on him. But notice carefully how David responds. And the first thing David does in Psalm 56, is to be realistic about his situation. And he explains his situation to God. Verse 3 says, When I am afraid, I will trust in you. And that's quite striking. That challenged me. Because here David is, and he's this great soldier. He's no wuss. He's been about a bit. He knows what's what. And yet he's prepared to admit, Lord, I'm frightened which isn't something a top general generally does in front of everyone else, in front of his soldiers. But David says, I'm frightened here. And he doesn't deny it or dodge it. He brings his fear out and acknowledges it. 
And this reminded me that as Christians, it's actually okay to say that you're afraid at times. Um, You know, the biggest commandment in the Bible actually is don't be afraid. So it often happens. So it's okay to say I'm afraid and to tell God all about it. And in this psalm, we see David doing this in no uncertain terms. Men are hotly pursuing me, he says. All day long, they're pressing their attack. And it's not just one, but many who are attacking me in their pride. Are you listening to this, Lord? I'm trapped here and there's no let up. There's no way out. And not only that, David says to God, but I'm quite literally a marked man here. Verse 5, all day long they're twisting my words, they're always plotting to harm me, they're conspiring, they're lurking, they're scheming, they're watching my steps, they're eager to take my life. And Israelites and Philistines alike, they're all at it, they're ready to take me out, they're waiting for the right time to carry out the hit. How are you going to sort this one out, God? And having owned his fear, notice what David does. His first priority is actually to turn to God and call upon his mercy. God, be merciful to me, he says, verse 1. I wonder what the first thing we do is, what what the first thing is that we do when, when bad news hits us. Phone a friend or a relative, kick the cat, stuff your face. But how often do we make God our first port of call? Because bad news sort of tells us what we really think of God. And bad news reveals our wonky theology. And bad news shows us what our faith is really like. And so often, whatever we say, our relationship with God is very much God on demand, God on my terms. Kind of, you scratch my back, God, and and I'll scratch yours. And then when bad things happen, it's kind of easy to get into, I've done so much to serve you, God, you're treating me this way. What sort of a God are you? Are you really God at all? And David surely didn't deserve to be treated like this by God. And he could have said, Lord, why are you letting me down like this? What are you doing this for? But he doesn't. He doesn't stake any claims before God. He doesn't say, Lord, look at all I've done for you. Uh, Look at all my achievements and whatever. Instead, he throws himself on God's mercy. And remember the definition of mercy. It's grace that we don't deserve, favor that we don't deserve, love that we cannot earn, love that we cannot demand. You see, difficulties show us what our relationship with God is really like, what it's really based on. And it's not based on our achievements, our experience, on what we think we deserve, on what we've done. It's based on God, on God's greatness, God's sovereignty, God's sheer grace, God's sheer mercy. And so David turns to God. But then there's verses 3 and 4, and I found these quite difficult. When I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I will not be afraid. 
And here David is, and he's facing this impossible situation, and yet he seems to move instantaneously from fear to faith and fear to trust, just like that in an instant. And the nice, neat formula that people say, just trust the Lord, doesn't always work instantaneously like that. Well, at least not for me anyway. And then I thought, well, is that actually what David's saying? Is he actually saying here that he's moved from fear to faith and courage in a single instant? And then actually I began to think, well, maybe no, he's not. And throughout this psalm, you can see David kind of oscillating in his emotions from fear to faith and then from faith to fear again. One minute he's praising God, the next minute he's looking at all the enemies who are, who are all around him and he's afraid again. So it's not straightforward. It's not a sort of simple situation. It's an ongoing experience that David's going through. So more likely, David's saying, well, I am afraid because it's a natural human response to the situation that I'm going through. But at the same time, I know that this situation will not overwhelm me and get the better of me. And I know that I will not go under because I know that God is greater and I know that God is with me. And I think we need to get this straight because being a Christian is not like you take a sudden happy pill and everything's wonderful and it doesn't get rid of all your troubles and all your distress completely. One commentary I read says, and I quite like this, that it's a bit like that old self-help book, only it's not self-help, it's God's help but the book where you feel the fear and yet you do it anyway. Uh, Not because I can do it, but because God is in it with me. When I am afraid, says David, I will trust in you. David turns to God. And then secondly, notice that this isn't a case of David putting his face on it and kind of grinning it and bearing it and stiff up a lip, old chap, and all that kind of stuff. Because David turns to God, and he bases his faith in God for a good reason. He trusts in God, it says, on the basis of his word. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise. So when we're facing difficulties, how do we get focused back again? How do we get aligned straight and on the road with God again? Well, the psalmist says here it's by clinging to God's word, to his very great and precious promises, as Peter, who also went through trials, describes them. And let's be honest, the last thing that you want when you're going through it is to have somebody quote a whole load of Bible verses at you. And again, let's be honest, when you're really going through it, you can read all the scriptures they like, but they don't seem to make any sense, and it's like they don't really apply to you. They seem to be talking about other people. And quite often, in fact, sometimes you can't face reading the Bible at all, let's be honest. But I believe that God understands that also. But this psalm suggests that what we need to do before the difficulties hit us is to get a real grasp of the scriptures now. Not just isolated verses, but a really good grasp of the big picture of who God is, 
and what God's about and what God has done through us through the cross and how God is reigning right now in heaven and how our world will all be put to rights put to rights again when Jesus returns in glory and in justice and he claims us as his own. And with that kind of perspective in our hearts and in our minds and sort of engraved upon us, our circumstances look very different and we have the strength to cope with whatever life throws at us. By this I know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? And then finally, David copes with this situation of trial and difficulty by looking back and thinking about God's faithfulness in the past. For David, while God is sovereign and all-powerful, he's also very human, very personal. He's a God of justice and righteousness who slays enemies and brings down the nations. But he's also a God of compassion, a God of tender mercy. And verses 8 to 9 here really struck me. Record my misery, says David, List my tears on your scroll, or another translation is, count them out in your bottle. Are they not in your record? And the background to this is that in ancient times, kings and generals and emperors and politicians and great leaders and so on would think about all the great acts and things they'd done in their lifetimes and have them written out on a scroll, on a list for posterity. Uh, to show off, really, to everyone else who had come after them and to say how great they were uh, and to get some glory. And there's a whole kind of genre of ancient literature dedicated to it. They're called the acts. Uh, and so you get the acts of a certain king or the acts of a certain emperor or a certain general or whatever. But God, says David, is different. He is God and he's the sovereign king of the whole universe... And what is God writing on his scroll? He's not writing all his great and wonderful acts, amazing though they all are. But actually he's writing down on his scroll all our tears. All our human tears of weakness and all our human grief and hurt. So every tear that you've ever cried when you thought nobody noticed, when you thought nobody was interested when you went home and howled, or when you held it all back and carried on regardless, you thought nobody was there, but actually God was there, and God was watching, and God knew, and God was listening. And so important, says David, are our tears to God, that he's kept a logbook of them, and he's recorded each tear in minute detail. And I sort of pictured three columns, date, occasion, cause, and our names. Record my misery, says David. Count my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your record? And then I started thinking, well, why does David picture God counting out our tears like this? And one commentary I read stated, and I like this fact, 
It's hardly a comment on God's mathematical prowess or his scientific interest in saline or H2O or whatever. God the scientist with our tears in his little vial. But what it's really getting at is that God is a tender father, a father who knows every detail of our lives and who keeps a record of all our wrongs and hurts and griefs and who will enact justice for them. And I like to think that God is counting out our tears so accurately just now because one day, Revelation 22 and verse 4, he's going to personally and tenderly and completely wipe away every tear from every eye and he won't miss any. And what an amazing day that will be. And so says David, on the basis of God's word and his promises, his person, his character, his dealings with me in the past, his compassion, his tenderness, I know, he says, verse 9, that God is for me. And again, that's an amazingly challenging thing for David to declare, given his desperate circumstances, about to face death, probably. And when we face trouble, it's very easy to actually start thinking, well, actually, God is against me. God's got it in for me. Why is God picking on me? You know, why is God treating me like this? Why couldn't God prevent this? And it's then that, like David, we have to cling on to God's faithful dealings with us in the past. And there's a passage in 1 Samuel 17 which describes the young David as he encountered this giant of Gath, Goliath. And that's quite challenging as we think about this. Remember when David faced the giant Goliath and people were sort of laughing at him because here's this young lad and he's dressed up in all this armor that that doesn't fit him and he looks a sight. And they were saying to him, look, you'll never beat Goliath. You'll never make it. God's just laughing at you. God's playing games with you. You're just a mere shepherd boy. And they must have got on like that to the teenage David. But David wasn't put off, and and he didn't run away from the battle. Because as a shepherd boy, when he was on the hills looking after the sheep, he'd encountered many, many dangers already. And in all the dangers he'd encountered, he knew that God was with him and that God had come through for him. And he says in 1 Samuel 17 and 34, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion... And the poor of the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. And he's thinking back to God's faithfulness in the past, God's faithful acts. So as he went through this awful experience, holed up in a cave behind enemy lines with Saul after his life, with the Philistines after his life, was David this great soldier, this grown-up man, Was he saying to himself again and again and again and again and again, just like the trusting shepherd boy that he'd once been, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear and the sword of Goliath and the jealousy of Saul will bring me safely even out of Gath. Because David knew God personally and he'd experienced God's care, God's grace, God's provision in the past. 
his past relationship with God, his past experience of God's faithfulness, faithful God, as we were singing earlier, enabled him to keep on trusting God when things got even harder. Well, that's okay for David, you may say, because David's a spiritual giant. But if thoughts of God's loving care seem a bit remote for you this morning in the situation that you face, well, remember that unlike David, we've got the ultimate proof that God is not against us, but that God is for us. The death of his only son, Jesus, on the cross. A cross on which he bore all our griefs and all our sorrows. You see, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we have the guarantee that one day evil and injustice and death and mourning and crying and pain will be dealt with fully and finally. And every tear will be wiped from every eye. And because of the cross, we have a guarantee that we have a faithful and merciful great high priest who is made just like us in every way, who himself endured great suffering, crying out to God with loud cries and tears during his time on earth, and who therefore understands us perfectly and is able to deal with us mercifully and gently. So if God the Father sometimes seems a bit remote and a bit hard to handle for you, then come to him through Jesus, as again we were singing this morning. The Jesus who knows just what it's like to be you and to be me. As Paul writes in that great hymn of praise in Romans chapter 8, what then are we going to say in response to all this? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but who gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons... Neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So when we face trials and we need to trust, three lessons from this psalm to help us. Let's turn to God, no holds barred. Tell him what our situation is and call upon his grace. Let's hold on to God's word, his many and precious promises. And let's remember God's faithfulness to us in the past. 
And remember that that faithfulness, when we're tempted to doubt it, was demonstrated supremely for us on the cross. So may we, like David, find the grace, whatever our situation, to offer, as he says, thanks to God and to keep on walking before him in the light of his life. For Jesus' sake. Amen.